I've been reading to my boys a little bit lately um, from the, uh, the Magician's Nephew, which if you had a good childhood like mine, you will have read The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, probably. Um, and uh, The Magician's Nephew is kind of like a prequel. As you know, C.S. Lewis is, um, although he's very well known for his children's series there, he is probably better known as a, a Christian thinker and apologist and he has these lots of little nuggets all the way through these children's books, which it's just I love because I'm reading them a book and then I get taught something, you know. Um, he has this little quote that says uh, he's talking to, uh, you know, the, the main characters in the story and um, he says to them, Oh, Adam's sons, which is obviously a, a term for people, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. And that's Aslan saying that, which is a kind of a picture of Jesus in the, in the Narnia Chronicles. Um, I'm hoping that today we'll, I guess, get a better understanding of, of one of these things that God intends to do us good. Um, and that we'll be, instead of seeing it as a burden, we'll be seeing it as a source of joy and a, so- a source of um, something we can, uh, we can do for each other. Now, if you were with me uh, when I taught just before Christmas, we, we looked at uh, a passage out of Romans chapter 12. And uh, if your memory is better than mine, uh, you may also remember that what God really challenged us in that particular passage to do was to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to use our spiritual gifts to serve each other, um, and also to determine God's will for us in all of that stuff. Today's text I've chosen, I guess, partly because it builds on this idea um, but also because it has really convicted me in the last few days and weeks. Um, and I guess it's also been really a source of encouragement as well. Um, interestingly, one of the key elements um, of the previous passage in Romans chapter 12 is that we see these difficult commandments. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Think soberly. Use your gifts. Be affectionate to one another. Serve, rejoice, be patient, give to others, pray, um, and as human beings trapped in, I guess, our selfish and self-absorbed kind of nature, um, it's so easy to immediately see these commands from God as intended to make life miserable for us or difficult for us. Um, or at the very best, we see them as something we really should do uh, because it's the right thing to do. Um, we're going to see a couple more commands uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. And it's my goal and my prayer today that, that we see that God gives us these commands not to make us miserable, but quite the opposite. In fact, God's commands are good for us. And I would love us to be able to go from here today with this deep sense of obedience uh, to God in our fellowship with, with each other. And uh, knowing that it will bring deep joy. It will cause us to grow. It will help us to fulfill our calling as God's ambassadors in this world. And ultimately, ultimately, we'll bring glory to God if we do these things. The God is the creator not only of the universe, of the stars and the sun and the earth, but also of us. And he loves us and he wants what's best for us. So um, we might stand again while I read the passage. I'm going to be teaching from the ESV version, which is what I got in my notes, but I'm going to read today from the New King James because it's just kind of nice to read out loud. Um, what I might get you to do, even though I've got you to turn there right now and I want you to follow along to keep me accountable, what I might get you to do is just hold your finger there um, and just listen because this is kind of how it was originally meant to be heard. 
Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Have a seat. Now, what we see in the text today, I guess, is this crazy notion that we, Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, Calves, as one likes to call it, um, I'm hoping that catches on. It's a little bit less of a mouthful than Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. Um, But this church of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, and indeed the entire church across the world, are called to live in a special kind of community. But the question, really, that this passage answers is what is this community? What does it look like? And there are really three elements that we see in this passage that describe the effective Christian community in this world. First, Christ is the cause and the motivation for community. Second, community is absolutely necessary for us to complete God's purposes for us in this world. And third, there are unique characteristics that the Christian community must possess and we'll have some more on that later. William MacDonald, who you probably know by now, is one of my favourites, one of my favourite preachers, an old brethren man that died about a decade ago, but um, faithful to the end and teaching in little churches till the day he died, wrote these amazing um, Bible commentaries and, and other, other articles and documents as well, books. Um, but he had this little phrase that he loved to use. He said, Christ is the gathering centre of the church. Christ is the gathering centre. We don't gather together because we all like a certain type of sport. We don't gather together because we have the same interests as one another in worldly ways. We don't gather together because, you know, we're just a bunch of nice people and we're particularly good looking or anything like that. Uh, quite the opposite <laughs> for some. No, uh, kidding. We, we gather together around Christ. Christ is the gathering centre of the community. He is the one that has made us able to come to God as a community and he is the one that draws us to each other in him. And really that's what verses 19 to 22 are all about. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places or the, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through the flesh, And since we have a great priest, a great high priest over the house of God. Here we can clearly see the echoes of the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament times, common people were kept at a distance from the holy place. Um, Previously, only priests could enter the holy place and that certain part of the holy place, the holy of holies, could only be entered by the high priest. Once a year on on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Um, And in this text, we see this assumption that all believers are actually priests. And this is really one of the big things of the Reformation, the priesthood of all believers. We don't need another man to mediate between us and God. 
there's this picture that the veil is torn. And the picture is that the veil is actually the body of Christ. The body of Christ is torn so that we can have access to the holy of holies, to where God himself resides. All men are called to enjoy fellowship with God. And thanks to the blood of Jesus being shed in that sacrificial way as payment for our sins, as atonement for our sins, then we can come to God. And, and that same sacrifice is now also our high priest. So yes, we have a priesthood of all believers. We are able to directly communicate with God through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. But we still need a high priest, and that's Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This idea of sprinkling, it's the same idea of you know, sprinkling the blood on the, on the door, the top to the doors in the Passover. It's used in the Old Testament as a means of, of, of signifying cleansing. And Francis Bevan has said, Conscience now no more condemns us, for his own most precious blood, once for all has washed and cleansed us, cleansed us in the eyes of God. It's this cleansing that allows us to draw near with a true heart. Not that when we become a Christian, it's not like our heart is made perfect in every way, but it's made perfect in the sight of God. Unless you're dishonest with yourself, you won't believe that all of a sudden I'm made completely perfect and will never sin again when I become a Christian. It's simply not true. We continue to go on. Our flesh continues to battle, as Paul said, the good I want to do, I do not do. No, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And there's that battle continually, but in the sight of God, we are made perfect in his sight. And it is this cleansing that allows us to do that, to draw near with a true heart. In other words, a heart without any deceit that says, God, I'm yours. I give up the old life. And we have to continue to do that. Give up the old life. I repent. And uh, notice that, that little phrase there, in full assurance. In other words, utter confidence. You know, when one of my children comes up to me, I'm in a crowd of people, that child knows that if he really needs me, I will be there for him. That if he needs to get my attention, then I'll listen to him. He's my child, um, or she. Um, in fact, she, a lot more, tends to gain my attention <laughs> more and more lately. But... Um, how much more us with our Father in heaven, who is perfect? Sometimes I ignore my children, to be completely honest. I'm not as attentive to their needs as maybe I ought to be, but God doesn't have those imperfections. He loves us as a perfect Father. We've also got this term, our bodies washed with pure water. It's actually referring to the purifying work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God acting in our lives. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 26 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And the question is, what is our hope? We have these vague ideas of what our hope might be, but in Hebrews, and just in the book of Hebrews alone, if we take some of the promises, and if you've got a pen and you want to make notes, this is probably some good ones to make. 
you can check it out. I'll just read the verse, the verse, verses and the references, and you can uh, keep me accountable later. But some of the some of the promises that we see in the book of Hebrews in, in chapter ten, verses verse sixteen, uh, he has promised to write the law in your heart. Verse uh, chapter thirteen, verse twenty one, and work in you what is pleasing in his sight. Ten seventeen, he has promised to remember your sins no more. Ten fourteen. He has promised that we will be perfected for all time by a single sacrifice. 13.59, he has promised never to leave us or forsake us. 12.10, and he has promised to bring good from all our pain. Having this hope is not something that we can go out to the kitchen and perform or to the street and perform. It's a private thing. We can't go to the. We can't go out and, and, and say, "I'm just going to go and have some hope now." We've just got to go down the street and get some hope. It's a matter of simply meditating on and believing in the promises that God has made. But to stop there would be very dissatisfying, because it's this hope itself that calls us to action. We can see that this action of a community. It really it. It's in our mutual relationship with Jesus that we perform these actions. Verse 24, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Actually, I think the New King James has a slightly better translation here. It says, Consider one another as a separate thing, with the aim of stirring one another up to to love and good works. So it's not necessarily that we're considering how to stir one another up to love and good works. We're actually just considering one another first. Studying each other. What does that person like? What does that person need? And um, there's something that inevitably happens in marriage. Um, in marriage, we need to consider each other or it's really not going to work out. Um, what does that person like that I do? What does that person like that I not do? What does that per- what's that person needing at the moment? Because they consider one another. But the aim is to stir one another up to love and good works. In other words, there's a suggestion that really we first and foremost consider each other and what that does is it shows us how to stir one another up to love and good works. The, um, the words stir one another up is, um, is a word of be sharp alongside. So we're kind of, and it can be translated as irritate. Um, and really, I guess, in a good way, irritating. Um, but it's as we irritate, as we sharp to each other, we're sharpening each other, uh, that we're stirring each other up. Secondly, the Christian community is absolutely necessary. It's the tool that God uses to sanctify us and to reach out to the world. There's nothing else like it. Nothing else can replace that Christian community. No, it's not necessary for personal salvation. We don't have this power of excommunicating people and and them losing their salvation. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. But it's necessary for us to be sanctified. In other words, to be made holy, to be made into the image of Christ and for us to be able to, in obedience, to be witnesses to the world. And since we have this hope in common and since together we have access to the presence of God, we are commanded to stir one another up to love and to good works. 
In fact, more than that, there's a very deliberate link here you'll see in the text. It's as we live in community together and we're doing these things that we are truly experiencing the growth and change coming from the access. So God desires through us accessing him in community to change us. He uses the community to keep us sharp, to keep us growing. Now, it doesn't say go and get stirred up by someone to love and good works. Although there, of course, there's nothing wrong with that per se. We know that as imperfect people, we, we need to be in fellowship to be held, held accountable, to be encouraged, to be taught, um, to be all sorts of things that we need. But the emphasis here really is on our responsibility to one another as brothers and as sisters and as members of this special community. Hence, stir one another up. Historically, I guess this verse has been used to try and tell people that they need to be coming regularly to church. Um, and it's not necessarily a wrong application um, of the text since one of the, I guess one of the most important kinds of encouragements and exhortations is, is preaching and hearing the word taught. But that's not really the focus of this verse. Um, the focus of this verse, I, I don't know if you try and imagine, are you, are, we, are you guys stirring each other up now at the moment? You're not. You can't sit in uh, a service and be stirring the person next to you up. Um, it, it doesn't work that way. What it's really talking about here is that we are to stir one another up in our relationships with each other outside of the Sunday gathering outside of that weekly gathering. I mean, even in the New Testament church, we saw that there was this weekly gathering, but, but more than that, it was a family. And as a family, we spend time with each other. We meditate on the Word together. We learn together. We pray together. We do all these things together. And yes, the times of teaching, of corporate teaching and worship are great. But the emphasis here is on knowing each other. And there's two words in the Greek for knowing. There's hoida and there's gnosko. Hoida is this kind of head knowledge. And gnosko is a knowledge of experience. So if I hoida that there's a chair over there, I, I can know all about the chair. I know that the chair has four legs. I know that it has a back and a, and a bottom part. I know that um, one sits on the chair and one um, rests on the chair and, and all these sorts of things. Facts about the chair, that's hoida. Gnosko is this Greek word which means I won't know the chair until I sit in the chair. When I sit in the chair, I know what the chair is. And that's the same. When we're called to know God and to know each other, it's this word that's used. We're called to experience each other. I can know all about a, a person and not really know them. I could be the biggest fan of Brad Pitt. I'm quite a big fan of Brad Pitt. Um, he's very good looking. Um, <laughs> no, I think he's, he's actually a good actor. Um, no, but he, you know, I can know all about him. I can know the day he was born. I can know his middle name. I can know that his original last name wasn't actually Pitt. It was something else. I don't actually know what it is, for the record. Um, I can know, you know, who his first girlfriend was. I can know um, what his favorite color is. I can know what his favorite food is. But do I know Brad Pitt? No, I don't. I don't know him, if it, just because I know facts about him. And it's the same in knowing each other, and it's the same in knowing God. We do experience one another. Now, as we're experiencing each other and as we're sharpening each other, this could be, it could be at the end of the service, really. If you want to find a quiet spot to talk to someone and to, to pray for them, great, if that, if that suits you. For us, we have three kids who will run around and injure themselves regularly uh, and other people. Um, 
so it doesn't necessarily always work that way for us. But um, it might be the men's Bible study. It might be the women's, the women's study. It might be, uh, it might be the end of dodgeball night when we go to Macca's afterwards and have a drink and just sharing our concerns, sharpening each other. It might be just a casual meeting with a friend to pray for him. Um, actually, Brad, Brad Hallett and I went to the beach on Friday and um, we took our kids down. I had a day off work. Kendall was working and, um, and he's a school teacher, so he gets the most ridiculous holidays known to mankind. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are actually a lot of school teachers here, so I better be careful what I say. They work really hard and they look after our kids and I love them dearly. And... Um, but we just had this, the, the ki- it was great because the kids, uh, you know, out of um, character for them, entertained themselves beautifully. Um, and they were just, they were on the sand dunes at the beach and they were sliding down on boogie boards and, and doing, and just playing beautifully together. And it was just weird. And we, Brad and I just sat and chatted. And I just came away from there just feeling so encouraged. I was like, you know, I just, I could share some of my, my struggles at the moment. And, and I just knew that we were just, just listening to each other. And, it, and it's as we do that together that we sharpen each other. It's tough work. It's not easy. You don't kind of go, you know what, I really feel like enduring the, someone else's pain today. It's what I feel like doing. I'm going to go and hang out with them and, and really endure their pain and, 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 and talk through their struggles because that's just what I feel like doing. You don't feel like doing these things. It's a choice to get out there and to serve somebody else. Charles Wesley said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. How different is that to today's tendencies? There's this whole tendency towards self-reliance and individualism. Lord, let us be different to the world. We're sinners and what we need sometimes is confrontation. We need someone to tell us we're in error the sins, interestingly, that are, that are most likely to trip us up are those ones that we don't see. The ones that we're not even aware of. But let us do it to each other with humility and grace. The same way that God does to us. I think too often we're busy criticising um, people outside of our little sphere for having the wrong ideas, for doing the wrong kind of things, for having the wrong theology, because you know they believe this is about... A dispensationalism, or they believe that about um, Calvinism, or they believe this about etc. etc. Creation, blah 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 blah. The list could go on. And and yes, we want to try and have the right theology. That's what God calls us to do: is really have the uh, the right way of thinking. But we spend so long, so much of our efforts or our our thinking space criticizing other people, when really we're called to sacrificially, gently humbly come alongside the people who are closest to us and to spur them on to love and good works. I think the criticizing the distant person is the easy way out. It doesn't really require anything of me and uh, it's something I certainly have been guilty of. Remember here, what is the purpose of the church? Yes, it is to edify each other. But primarily the, the, the purpose of the church on earth is to be ambassadors for God. To share with the world the love that God has shown us. 
Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, retells an old parable in a modern kind of way. I think you'll recognize the parable. and I'm going um, to share it with you and maybe read some parts out as well. There's a young girl that grows up uh, in, in Michigan in a little town called Cherry Orchard, which is just outside of Traverse City. Her parents are a bit old and they tend to overreact to her nose ring and to her short skirts and the kind of music she listens to. Um, and they ground her a few times. Inside, she's seething and she says, I hate you. She screams at her father when he's knocking on the door trying to sort things out. And, and that night, she sits in her bedroom and she, she finally goes through with a plan that she's been having for a long time to run away from home. Now, Detroit is the big city in Michigan and, and she decides that she's only been there once before on a youth group trip. She decides she's, she's gonna, it'll be the last place they look for her. In downtown Detroit, where it's seedy and rough and there's gangs and drugs and violence, the parents might look for her in, in California or in Florida or something like that, but they're not going to look for her in, in downtown Michigan. So off she goes. On her second day, there she meets this man who has the biggest car she's ever seen in her life. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, gives her somewhere to stay, gives her some pills that make her feel happier than she's ever felt before. And she was right all along, she thinks. My parents were keeping me from all the fun. So this continues. She's happy for a, you know, a week, a month, two months, a year. The man, over this period of time, shows her a few little tricks that will please men. And since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she likes. Occasionally she thinks about her folks back home, but when she does, she thinks, well, home there was so mundane. You know, I can't even imagine going back there. She does have a brief scare once when on the back of a milk carton she sees her picture and it says, have you seen this child? But by now she's bleached her hair blonde and with all that makeup and body piercing and the jewellery and everything else, nobody would mistake her for a child and certainly not for the child on the milk carton. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and no one in Detroit really squeals in that kind of way. No one's going to dob her in. After about a year, the first signs of illness begin to kick in. And it's amazing to how, how fast the boss turns. He says, these days, you know, we, we, we can't mess around. And she's out in the street without a penny to her name. And she runs, you know, still runs a, a few tricks at night, um, which just manages to cover her drug habit. And when winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on the metal grates outside the department stores. Sleeping is kind of the wrong word because really a teenager in Detroit can't sleep. They're always half awake. They have to be awake. And soon there's dark circles under her eyes. Her cough gets worse. One night she lies awake listening for footsteps and all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl. Lost in a cold and frightening city, she begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers with the newspaper she's got on top of her as a coat. And some, suddenly something jolts this little spark of memory. And a single image fills her mind of, of the May time in Travis City when all the cherry trees were in bloom and she's throwing balls for a golden retriever. And she thinks, God, why did I leave? 
So the pain's stabbing her heart. And she, she says, my, my dog at home is better treated than I am here. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. So three phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. The third time she says, Mum and Dad, I'm coming home. I'm thinking about coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus till it hits Canada. So it takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realised that the floor is in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and missed the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day and just talked to them? And if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead a long time ago. Or they might be angry at her. They might not even want to see her. She should have given given them some time to overcome the shock, maybe. But her thoughts are bouncing back and forth between those worries and the speeches she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all my fault. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening, even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologised to anyone in years. So the bus has been driving with the lights on. Tiny snowflakes are hitting the pavement. It swerves to miss a deer on the road. She's forgotten how dark it gets out here. And then there's a sign saying, Traverse City. When the, fu- when the bus finally comes into the station, its air brakes are hissing and, and the, the, annou- the, the driver says in a kind of a crackly announcement, you've got 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. So she's got 15 minutes to decide her life. She looks at herself in a compact mirror, she smooths her hair, gets the lipstick off her teeth, um, looks at the tobacco stains on her fingerprints and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, and I'm going to read it from here. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome home. And out of the crowd breaks her dad. She stares through the tears, quivering in her eyes like hot mercury, and begins the memorised speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. I've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. This is the love that the Father has for us, the love that he has shared with us. It's funny, every time, no matter what version of the prodigal son I read, I start to tear up. I read it in the Bible, if I read a, para, if I read a paraphrase, whatever it is. I think because I know that this was me, but this is all of us. God has welcomed us with open arms. And it's this love as the community of Christ that we're called to share with the people who don't know God in this world. This is our response to God's love for us, is to share this love with other people. Far too often we're busy thinking about the right thing to do. Far too often we're busy thinking, well, you know... Rationalizing, really, 
a lack of love for the outside world. It's this kind of love and it's this kind of good works that we're to spur one another onto. We're called to love the world that says Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This word encouraging, it's parakaleo. It sounds familiar. It's the word that's also used in places for the Holy Spirit and it literally means alongside calling. The day is drawing near. Every day we are closer to the day when Jesus will return in judgment. I love that song that Luke sang just before. The all the hearts who are content, all who feel unworthy, all who hurt with nothing left. Basically, we'll know that he is holy. We'll know that you are holy. And that's true. At one day in, in, in eternity, we will all know that God is holy. The question for us is, will they know and be joyful about the fact that God is holy, knowing that they are his children and have eternity with him, or will they know and, and it won't be such a joyful occasion? And God calls us to be involved in that process. And to encourage each other in that process. We have these unique qualities as the body of Christ. We have a unique purpose in reaching the world. We know that Christian community is instituted by God and is absolutely essential in completing our purpose on earth. And I guess we've seen in this passage today that the motivation is completely from God and the work of Christ on the cross to give us confidence, assurance and hope. I want to finish with a quote from Jude that speaks of this same hope from the end of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever.